There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week, we have the privilege of discussing knee injury and osteoarthritis. About 20% of people who develop osteoarthritis of the knee do so as a consequence of an injury they sustained earlier during their life. The most common anatomic structure injured that accounts for a large proportion of that osteoarthritis risk is the anterior cruciate ligament or ACL. Unfortunately, despite a lot of community perception, surgical reconstruction of that ligament and rehabilitation doesn't prevent long-term morbidity, alter the risk of osteoarthritis development, or reduce the risk of future ACL injury. The costs associated with that injury to the individual and to the healthcare system and longer-term societal costs are substantial. All that said, even more concerning, injury rates appear to be on the rise. The best current evidence would suggest that the majority of these injuries are preventable but really importantly from a public health perspective and opportunities missed, we do little to take advantage of that golden opportunity. And the purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this complicated area and identify what can be done to reduce joint injury. And we're joined by none other than Tim Hewitt. And Timothy Hewitt is a former director of the Biomechanics Laboratories and the Sports Medicine Research Center at the Mayo Clinic and Director of the Sports Health and Performance Institute at The Ohio State University, and Professor and Director of Sports Medicine Research at OSU, and Professor and Director 
of Sports Medicine Biodynamics Centre at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the Research Foundation. So lots and lots of roles. He was a professor in sports medicine, family medicine, orthopedic surgery, physiology and cell biology and biomedical engineering and allied health professionals at OSU Pediatrics and Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. And Tim possesses a doctorate in physiology and biophysics, postdoctoral fellowships in molecular biology and biomechanics, pharmacology and cell biophysics, and human biomechanics. And over 400 of his research articles have appeared in peer-reviewed medical journals with over 50,000 citations of his work in the medical literature. Impressive bio, Tim. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, great, great to have you here and really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us about a really, really important topic. And I think that's one that's incredibly relevant to our listeners that they probably don't really have a good understanding of. So thanks very much for taking the time. The, f- the first thing that I usually try to do is to get to know you a little bit better, both for myself, but also for the listeners. But I'm just wondering if in the first instance, if you could describe yourself in five words, what words would you choose? That's a great question. I would say scientist, historian, singer, dancer, fitness bulldog. (laughs) It sounds fascinating. And hopefully we'll get into some of those details, particularly around the singer, dancer, fitness bulldog piece. But really, really looking forward to chatting with you. Now, from a professional perspective, on a day-to-day basis, when you're at work, can you just tell me a little bit more about what it is that you do? Well, what I do is I work... I'm currently a consultant. I work across the globe in both academia and industry. And I do injury risk reduction studies in especially now very large data, usually working with controlled trials or very large cohorts. For example, uh, entire regions of the U.S., say, you know, multi-state regions in the Midwest, entire counties within states, entire school systems, professional leagues have expanded out to do more in, in Australia as well with multiple groups from professional leagues to military groups. Brilliant, brilliant. And, you, you know, you've made a huge impact in that area and really looking forward to Uh, exploring that a little bit further with you. Now, whether you get into the singer-dancer fitness bulldog piece or not, is up to you, but when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? Well, I I am a um, truly voracious reader of histories, especially scientific and medical histories. So, for example, one of my very favorite books is is The Strange Case of the Broad Street Pump, It's about the development of the discipline of epidemiology. John Snow was actually the father of that. And it's it's a story about how he discovered during one of the massive cholera epidemics in London that it was traced to one pump. And those sorts of, I'm actually reading a a new book now. I just just received it from, from Amazon, from Sandra Hempel as well, great science writer. I'm into that. I do a lot of poetry writing, songwriting, singing, and just enjoy that immensely. And then also, I, I also do a, 
I mean, everyday fitness training. I spent a lot of time on my cycle. Uh, there's a lot of bridges around where I live. I cycle bridges and get off and get video and just in, enjoy that time. As well as uh, I, I've owned just about every kind of bulldog there is known <laughs> and bred. And I really enjoy bulldogs and, and they, they share that sort of attitude with me. I see myself as a scientific bulldog. I, I love to debate. I love to try to pull out the ideas that are, are true and real and that people can use to advance medicine and science. It sounds like there's many strings to your bow. And, you know, I think a lot of the great scientists and researchers that I have the privilege of speaking to tend to have very diverse interests. I mean, you know, really interested in your uh, interest in scientific history and, you know, that from an epidemiologic perspective, what you just read sounds incredibly relevant to the importance of public health and its control of epidemics such, such as what we're going through. I really can't, I really cannot recommend that book more highly. I've read the book three times. I've been, I enjoyed it so much. And, and again, it, it's Sandra Hempel and the strange case of the Broad Street pump. And it's, it's, it's really a great story about Jon Snow, the father of epidemiology. So suggest that reading to your listeners very highly. Yeah, brilliant. Sounds, sounds like a fantastic bog. Now, how many bulldogs do you actually have at the moment? Uh, just one bulldog and uh, a cat, actually. And the bulldog and the cat have this love-hate relationship. And I, I see in their back and forth a good um, discipline uh, setter for our scientific debate. <laughs> because I think we need to kind of show each other love and respect at the same time we have to pull out of one another you know we need to debate i think debate is good as long as it's done with respect in in a collegial manner and you know i worry in the current day i i i worry a lot as a scientist where we are with the scientific debate about all that's going on in the world and how much falseness there is there and how that's being perpetuated. And I think it's important that we have collegial, respectful discussions across science to make sure that we're doing the right things moving forward in, in science and medicine. I think it's absolutely key. And key to that is with respect and in a collegial manner. I completely agree with you. And I think a, a lot of the time these days, people tend to shy away from being direct and honest and giving thoughtful, critical appraisal and feedback because they're concerned about sensitivity, the resilience of the individual that they might be delivering that to. But you know, I think for scientific discourse, for us to advance a lot of what we're doing, we need to be forthright, but as you say, respectful in those discussions. It's so important so that we can continue to advance. And honest, as you said, is absolutely key. We need to be honest and forthright with one another in, in all of our discussions and deliberations. Yeah. And so, you know, really interested also in the analogies between the bulldog and the scientist. Do you see any, I guess, characteristics in a bulldog that should be applied to a person's scientific career and research, oh. particularly in the context of one where we continue, continue being rejected and turned down, those sorts of features? Resilience, grit are key aspects to being a scientist and to be a successful scientist. 
you have, again, I, I liken everything to sport. So, you know, baseball and, you know, that, that we love and that's going on in some form in the U.S. now, I'm a huge baseball fan. I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan, and when I was a kid, we won a couple what we call in the U.S. World Championships, which I'm sure you Aussies get a kick out of. Uh, we, but, we understand it. I lived in I lived in Boston <laughs> for about ten years during the World see. World Series wins that they had as well. The Red Sox are amazing. Yeah. yeah, I've been to that amazing park. I've been to I've tried to go to all the historical parks around the country and really enjoyed Boston. The Green Monster is an amazing structure. Yeah. And but if you think about baseball, you think about in terms of, well, you know, if you're a if you're a pretty solid batter, you're you're going to hit about 25 percent of the time. If you're amazing a third of the time, you know, that's that's the top of the top as a scientist. Are you kidding? Between success, a quarter, a third of the time would be an amazingly successful scientist. So the reality is, well, if you look at current funding levels, they're below 10%. So, so we're lucky if we get a hit one in 10. So you absolutely have to be a bulldog champion of your ideas. You can't hold on it to it too tight if you discover that you're wrong and you need to move forward in your thinking. But at the same time, you, you have to be a bulldog, you have to be resilient, you have to have great grit to move forward, to stay in the game and be successful, which is, it's extremely challenging. But if you like that, if you have that sort of temperament, you know, I watched your podcast with Stefan Lomander, who's, who's a hero of mine. We, we lectured in Germany together not too long ago last year. And just had an amazing time sitting and talking with him. And one of the words that he used to describe himself was stubborn. And I think you have to have that, that bulldog, that stubborn mentality. You have to grab on and hang on while everyone's trying to throw you off and everyone's telling you you're wrong and you can't do it. You got to hang in there and, and just believe in scientific discipline, believe in the scientific method and move forward. Yeah, wonderful life lessons, and hopefully the listeners uh, are getting out of this as much as, as I'm getting out of it, Tim. It's, uh, it's wonderful to hear, and I also love the analogy about baseball and their strike rates because you know, our, strike, our strike rates are a hell of a lot worse, and you know, I think for a lot of baseball aficionados who are out there, they think this hitter is on a really lean streak right now, but you know, that's, that's life as a researcher. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. Very lean. Yeah. Now let's get into the topic of the day and hopefully we can get back to some of those really interesting issues later on. The first thing I wanted to do, because I think some of this is potentially going to be a little bit confusing if we don't cover some of the nomenclature first, because I think from a public health perspective, it's important. We get some of the terminology right. In the first instance, can you help us to understand a little bit about the differences between risk reduction versus prevention? And by all means, use joint injury as an example, if you'd like. Yeah, so I would highly recommend a paper, a commentary that I published in JOSP a couple years ago. It's called Prediction of Future Injury in Sport, Primary and Secondary ACL Ligament Injury Risk and in Return to Sport as a Model. And in this, I argue, 
we've been going back and forth with other groups around the world for the past, oh, it's probably been a decade or so about whether you can predict injuries. Now, obviously, can anyone predict a specific athlete having a specific injury at a specific time? Absolutely not. However, if you work with epidemiologists and you work with biostatisticians, they use the word prediction all the time. It's standard in the field. And I think you need to look at it in retrospect and in analogy to fields like meteorology. We all watch the news every day. We get up and we listen to the news about what the meteorologist is going to predict is going to happen. Well, their hit rate is probably all, not all that great when you look at it, but they're still going to do it. And it's more about trying to risk stratify than it is about trying to predict something. So that's what we're doing, whether we're using a, a multiple logistic regression or more, even more complex models. We're just trying to put athletes in relative risk categories so we can target interventions towards those that are more high at risk. Now, that's not to say if we have an intervention that works, we shouldn't try to get that to every athlete. That's a good idea, though it's as impossible as true prediction is. But the, the idea is try to figure out what athletes are at relatively higher risk. Train as many as you can, but especially target those interventions toward the higher risk athletes, but especially related to their risk profile and their risk stratification level. So prediction is not the greatest term, even the term of prevention. So if you think of what I tell people is this is semantics, it is, but it's, it's more than that. It, it's important delineation. So for example, if you, if you say I can prevent something, if it's injury prevention, that means you have to go back and you have to be able to predict. Therefore, if you say I can't predict, I certainly can't prevent. So I tend to use the terms instead of prevention, risk reduction, because that's actually what we're trying to do. And we're trying to do it across groups, not in specific athletes, but we're trying to for instead of prediction, risk stratification, put athletes in relative risk categories. And then for instead of prevention, risk reduction across all those categories, reduce relative risk of an injury. Brilliant. So I think that's uh, really very helpful because I think a lot of what we're going to talk about, we're going to be using terms like that. So I think it's incredibly important the listeners have a sense of what we mean by that. Now, the knee is an incredibly complex structure, which involves lots and lots of different anatomic features. I'm just wondering if you could just give us a 30-second brief discussion of what you think the main structures are that are relevant to today's discussion. I like to use my fist-to-fist analogy here. So this is my, the, the bottom obviously is my tibia. This is my femur. These are the medial and lateral condyles coming into contact with one another. The big structures across the joint are obviously the anterior cruciate ligament, which 
could be modeled like this, although that's not the most polite way to do it. You know, bringing the ACL from front to back across the middle of the joint. The ACL, by the way, is proportional to the size of your pinky on your hand. Your PCL, and the reason they're called the cruciate ligaments is they cross one another as you look at them in the sagittal plane. And the thumb is proportional to the size of your PCL, actually. It's bigger, thicker, stronger ligament. And where they cross one another is basically the center in the sagittal plane, the center of the hinge point of the knee joint, which actually changes as you flex and extend the knee. And then you have off your fibula, you have your lateral collateral ligament. On the medial side, your medial collateral ligament, those are the four main ligaments of the knee. You have your medial meniscus, your lateral meniscus, which are the main shock absorbers of the knee. And then on this, the surfaces of the, of the articulating surfaces of the tibia and the femur with the menisci, you have the articular cartilage. And those are the main structures that we're concerned with and that we'll talk about in our discussion today. Superb. Now, this is again, I guess, extending a little bit from the stratification concept that you were talking about before. But when we're thinking about the population of people who are at risk for injuring an anterior cruciate ligament, for example, what factors intrinsic to that individual, but also extrinsic to that individual, play a role in determining whether they're likely at risk of rupturing their cruciate ligament? Those are good questions, and we've been after this since the early 90s, these, these questions, and they're so more than 25 years. Things like body mass, body mass is almost always a predictor in all of our models. Bone length is usually a predictor. The, the bigger, the taller a person is, the longer their femur and tibia are, the greater at risk they are. But then if we look at more modifiable factors, what we see in our analyses is we see the knee abduction moment. So that's the torque tending to push the knee into that dynamic valgus position. And that angle the knee reaches tends to be a pretty good predictor on its own. High ground reaction forces. So landing with, especially with a flat foot and landing very quickly without a lot of turn in the foot across the surface and then differences in relative knee moments in the sagittal plane sagittal flexion extension moments the relative activation of the hamstrings and the glutes which are agonists and helpers to the acl versus the front of the joint the, the quadriceps those type of activations are pretty good risk stratifiers or people who are going to have an increased risk of an ACL injury. I guess extending from that a little bit further and particularly thinking about traction forces in the foot and extrinsic factors to that individual that potentially could play a role, we hear occasionally talk about the surface that sports are played on, the shoes that people wear. Do they contribute to a person's risk? So we actually, one of the first early studies we did we tried to figure out, we thought early on that the early astroturfs, which were those really plastic turfs, put an individual at risk. And we actually, the, on the north side of Cincinnati, there was a facility that, that our medical group covered, which was called Soccer World. And they had an equal number of 
AstroTurf and natural grass surfaces. And they also had recreational teams that were co-educate, co-ed. They were half male, half female. And also uh, the games were always exactly an hour long. So it was really easy to track. So in epidemiology, it's relatively easy to get the numerator, which is the number of injuries, which really difficult for good epidemiology is getting the denominator. In this situation, it was really easy because we knew the exact minutes everyone played and we had athletic trainers on all the fields recording everything. Our hypothesis in this study was that there was going to be higher risk of an ACL tear on AstroTurf than there was on natural grass. When we ran the numbers, there was no difference. When we looked at it, though, so the neat thing about this data, and this is, this is an important point I'd like to make in this discussion, serendipity in science is one of the coolest things that can ever happen to you, and it's happened to me like three times over my career. This was interesting because basically what this data showed was the teams had to be equal, male and female. And what really jumped out of that data set was that females were 6.12 times more likely to tear their ACL regardless of surface. We had no, absolutely no hypothesis. And that's the other great thing about serendipity in science is because hypothesis generation, the scientific method is crucial to move our understanding of science and medicine forward, but it also biases our thinking. As soon as you develop a, a hypothesis, you're going to be your bulldog. You're going to want to hold on to that hypothesis and that theory. That didn't work out. We looked across the data set and what hit us in the face. Now, we thought, wow, this is something absolutely brand new. No one's ever known anything like this before. And that's another cool thing that I love about science is that, you know, having that knowledge in your mind and in your hand to say, wow, we're the first to ever know this very often or most often you're wrong. So what we did is look around and found in this really the journal of the Southern Orthopedic Association, we found this study that showed that in the Pacific 10, those are the schools out along the Pacific coast of the U.S., this is in basketball, versus the, the Big 10, which is the schools where I am across the Midwest, they showed that females were actually 6.2 times more likely to tear their ACLs in basketball and just mind-blowing. And I got to know the authors of that study and we're, we're long-term friends ever since. Terry Malone is a, is, a, is a great guy. He was the first author of that study and I called him up and I said, you know, this is crazy. We found this and he said, you know, no one was interested in this. It wasn't sort of politically correct at the time. And we, we couldn't get it published anywhere. Well, we ended up publishing that in AJSM. And then that started us on this long series of studies trying to figure out what the predictive factors for this problem were and what the possible interventions targeted to those predictive factors were. So that's it. The other point I want to make in this study is your ideas are probably not novel. <laughs> Look back in, especially, you know, in, in all of science, but especially in sports medicine literature, people tend to ignore what's come before, what people have done 25, 30 years ago. 
for example, with the women's, the AFLW, everyone's saying, well, we're looking, we're seeing all these problems. We're going to come up with interventions. And no one's looked at the role of sex hormones before. People looked at that 25 years ago. We put out consensus statements on that in the 90s. So yeah, for young scientists, you have to go back and you have to learn and know the literature because you don't want to start from scratch again. It, it doesn't make sense. So the other important point is consilience of data where all the data sets come together. So if we had stood on our own and said, look, we found females 6.2 times more likely, the political correct police would say, no, you, you can't say women are different than men. There's all kinds of it. You certainly can't bring hormones into this. But when you bring multiple points of evidence together that are highly consilient, you know those to be true. And then we went on, got that published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine and got many, many grants for the next 25 years from the National Institutes of Health studying these issues. So serendipity in science, consilience of data sets, going back and understanding the prior literature, what's already been done so that you can build upon that. Those are all crucial points. Yeah, so many important lessons there. And I think particularly paying attention to the history and the literature, it's so, so wealthy and so many people have done great work before and we really need to pay a lot more attention to it because there's some wonderful knowledge that's already been out there. Now you, you started touching upon it and it's probably a good way to get into it, but what are the modifiable neuromuscular risk factors that put a person at risk and how might someone identify those imbalances? So basically what we did is when we started doing these studies, publishing them in the early, mid, late 90s, all through the 90s, we started to look for especially modifiable predictors of risk. And I would say published a paper in IJSPT where we really discuss this in detail. It's a good paper. It's called Understanding and Preventing ACL Injuries, Current Biomechanical and Epidemiologic Considerations. So I, I do what I call biomechanical epidemiologic research. So this takes large populations. It takes large teams of people to do it. It takes a lot of funding to do it because basically what we're doing is biomechanically testing thousands and thousands of athletes, letting them go out and play and following them epidemiologically over time. And basically what we found in this situation was what, what we term four neuromuscular dominance patterns. The first one we call ligament dominance, and we can discuss more of what these mean. The second is what we call uh, quadriceps dominance, the third we call leg dominance, and the fourth we call trunk dominance. And what you can actually monitor athletes, do simple tests, and pick up these dominance patterns. Do you want to just expand a little bit on each of those uh, dominance sure. factors that you spoke about? And if possible, just touch upon screening tests or other methods that a person might use to identify whether they do have that or not. I can, I can do that. So ligament dominance, what we mean by that, I actually went back into a paper that was in JBJS in the 1970s that Jimmy Andrews wrote, and he used this term ligament dominance. And he used it in a slightly different way that, that I did 
However, I really liked the term and how it related to what I saw, which is basically using the ligament to stiffen and control the movement of the joint rather than using the neuromuscular system to absorb and dissipate forces on the joints. Yes, the ligament does control movement of the tibia versus the femur, but it's not really designed, especially in the frontal plane, to absorb and dissipate the forces that you hit the body with. So, for example, when you're just walking, you're hitting the ground, and the ground is hitting you back just during walking with around two or three times body mass. So, for example, I weigh 100 kilos. I'm hitting the ground, and the ground is hitting me back with 200 to 300 kilos of force. My ACL is only able to resist in the range of 150 200 kilos of force. So I'm already, even just with walking, if I allow all the force to go to my ACL, there's enough force there to rupture the ligament. So you have to use your neuromotor system, especially those big muscles of the lower extremity, especially the glutes, the hamstrings, the quads to absorb and dissipate force instead of allowing that force to go in the ligament and especially the forces in the frontal plane because the big muscles around the joint, the quads, the hammies, the glutes, they aren't as well designed to control forces in the frontal and absorb those forces. So that's what we call ligament dominance, using the ligament to absorb and dissipate force rather than the musculature. The second is pattern we call quadriceps dominance. And what I mean by that is overuse of the quadriceps to stabilize and stiffen the joint. So the quadriceps is a big, strong, great muscle. The problem is with the knee in less than 45 degrees flexion, the quadriceps is an antagonist to the ACL. The ACL is trying to hold the tibia from moving forward relative to the femur, and the quadriceps is pulling the tibia forward relative to the femur. So you have to have good coactivation. You have to be able to turn on your posterior chain musculature and a lot of people don't activate their hamstrings and glutes in a way, especially during landing and cutting, that optimally pulls that tibia back and takes stress and strain off of the anterior cruciate ligament. That's what I mean by quadriceps dominance. Leg dominance is, you know, it's a little different than normal what we, we, we call dominance patterns, whether you're left-handed or right-handed, left foot or right foot, although they can be related to one another, they're different. What it is is large asymmetries in one leg versus the other in force dissipation, for example. And that creates these asymmetries are always, especially force asymmetries, are really good predictors or stratifiers of future injury risk. Finally, trunk dominance. What trunk dominance is, is if you watch an athlete move and he or she, with their movement, with a cut or with a landing, they get a lot of, especially frontal plane truncal motion, that's problematic because at the core, about the umbilicus and behind it is your center of mass. And when you move that center of mass around a lot, especially in the frontal plane, ground reaction force that's reacting from the ground where your foot strikes to your center of mass, if that kid goes lateral to the hip and the knee, 
they collapse the hip and the knee in that predictive dynamic valgus posture that strains the ACL in the frontal plane. And that's what I mean by trunk dominance. Now, what we do is just a simple test. I started doing this after those early discoveries, differences in females versus males. We came into the laboratory and we tried to get a test that gave us performance measure, uh, power measurement, coordination measurement, and we came up with a drop vertical jump test. And basically we needed something that we could do in the laboratory, but also translate out onto the court and onto the field. So we do off of a, a one foot high or 30 centimeters, actually what I used to do funny story. I was out at a school and I wanted to test and I was looking for something of the heights that we used in our, in our metal boxes. And I found uh, milk cartons, plastic milk cartons were exactly the height I want, exactly a foot, 30.5 centimeters, put one under each foot and we do our drop vertical jump test and take video. So what you can use that for is you get this idea of these athletes that allow a lot of frontal plane collapse of the hip and the knee, that they land flat footed, they don't roll their foot, that they tend to be very straight legged, which increases ground reaction force. And that's quad dominance because they're extending that joint. And you can also get at with some simple tests of, of strength, for example, relative activation of posterior versus anterior chain musculature. And also during that drop vertical jump test, you can monitor the amount of frontal trunk plane movement. Now we've done this in multiple studies. And for this series, I would highly suggest you look at our paper that Oh, we published relatively recently in 2018 that this was with Wendy Hurd and, and Kate Webster, where we, we call it our five facts max paper. So the idea there is you don't want to get caught up in too many factors. You want to pull out those that are important. And usually in most of our models, we pull out about four factors. Most of our predictive models are no more than five. And with the kind of idea that well, if you have a factor that's going to be relatively predictive or good at risk stratification, it's going to have an R level of correlation value of at least 0.4, maybe a little higher plus, you know, and hopefully much higher, but at least 0.4, which means it's going to, you're going to want it to account for at least 20% of the variability in your model. So if you say a good factor is going to have an R squared value of at least 0.2, you don't really need more than five factors. So we published that in the AMSSM's journal, the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine, just a year and a half, two years ago. And uh, we call it our five facts max paper. And so that's a series of simple approaches that you can use to get at with a simple box vertical jump test and some frontal versus posterior chain strength or muscular activation. That together can give you some pretty good models for risk stratification of athletes. That's great information, Tim. And, you know, obviously, in addition to the paper, is there any graphic 
resource like a video or something that depicts those common factors that you would recommend? Oh, oh yes. I, so I just, I've been working hard on it. I just started about a week ago as my YouTube channel. And as you could say, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been pumping that out like crazy. I'm a bit of a insomniac. And so when I can't sleep, I go play and I've got lots of, well, I've got over 50 videos on there now with more, more coming. So basically if you look on YouTube and you look for Tim or Timothy Hewitt, PhD, you can find my site and there's tons of resources showing drop vertical jump and going through explanations and very visual cueing of, of what we're talking about. Brilliant. Brilliant. I think that's going to be really helpful information for those that want to dig into that further. Now let's work on the assumption that you've identified that there is someone out there who has one of the imbalances that you're talking about, one of those factors that you want to modify. What is there that we can do that would be recommended to someone to address those imbalances? So there's very well published research on this. Interventions that are directly targeted to those four imbalances I talked about reduce risk of an ACL, all ACL tears by 50% and reduce the risk of a non-contact, which should be the modifiable, the ones that are actually changeable by two thirds. And we actually published a paper in 1999 that showed that in a large cohort study. And then Kate Webster and I published just last year, a paper in Journal of Orthopedic Research, where we did a meta-analysis of all the existing meta-analysis in the literature. There are about 15 now more and basically demonstrate that same exact number. You can reduce overall risk by 50% and non-contact ACL risk by two thirds. And this is really clear. It's one of the talk about consilience of data. It's amazingly consilient in the findings. In the field of sports medicine, I don't know that anything has been shown to be as unequivocal as that, that we can reduce that relative risk of an ACL tear. And this goes, again, the first study published back in the late 90s. It's so important and it's really, really valuable information that we get out there. And I guess just to reiterate that most of the injuries are non-contact injuries and it's really about the way, a person, yeah, mm -hmm. the way a person lands. And again, just to stress that two thirds of those are eminently preventable through these neuromuscular training programs. What are these training programs, Tim? What's involved in them? So the training programs are based primarily off of plyometric type exercises. So they teach control, core control. They teach rapid acceleration to deceleration with under movement patterns that absorb, use the neuromuscular system to absorb and dissipate force drilled over and over again, core control, trunk control, what they've shown. We published the first one in 25 years ago in, in an AJSM paper in 1996, where we demonstrated these imbalances that I talked about are all decreased significantly with this type of training. And you can increase relative vertical jump height. So it's not only got that prevention aspect, but it also has a performance enhancement aspect as well. And again, if you want to look for videos, I'm uploading more all the time. I've got so many videos over the past three decades that I'm renewing and putting out there so that, that I've used in my talks, but that haven't been out there publicly on my YouTube channel, Tim Hewitt. That's so important. And are there any 
uh, in addition to your YouTube channel, any particular uh, training programs? Because like, I know there are some more generic ones that are out there and some more sports-specific so, so ones. Put out, so we put out last year three different. So we started out, it was in the, in the January in Journal of Athletic Training. We put out one called the Position Statement Prevention of Anterior Cruciate Ligament Injury. That's a 42-page monster that summarizes all the data and what ingredients of a injury reduction program work. Uh, then we worked with JOSP. That was a, a clinical practice guideline that we published in oh, last summer where, and that, that's a really great resource because it has videos, uh, multiple different uh, preventative exercises on, as a addendum to that, to that paper that was, again, through the American Physical Therapy Association. And then also in early in that year, we published that meta of metas that summarizes what programs work and, and why. What I might do is grab some of those references that you're just referring to there, Tim, and include them in the show notes so that it, for sure. those that want to dig into a little bit further, uh, they can they can access those more simply. Now, you obviously, you've, you've explained it really well. So the risk reduction is definitely possible. Why is this not more widely known? Why is this not widely disseminated? Why aren't people out there at grassroots sporting levels doing this? Injury prevention, or the better term, injury reduction, is not necessarily sexy. It's hard to get buy-in by coaches because coaches tend to be some of the most underpaid and overworked and, and time-absorbed people on the planet. So there's time issues, there's compliance, getting the teams to comply with it. And then once you, you get a team involved, adherence by athletes, it has to be something that they want to do. So very often you need to do things like sell performance aspects of it. We showed, we published a couple papers. These were by Sugimoto and American uh, Journal of Athletic Training that basically coaches don't really buy into this. Basically what we show is if it's presented to an athlete, they're pretty adherent. Their adherence rate is over two thirds, but under a third of coaches are compliant with giving the athletes the training. So that's a big challenge with it. So multiple of these issues, but I think dissemination is absolutely key. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this with you today. I try to hit. So that's why I spend so much time with social media because Dissemination is, is such a key aspect of it, but also issues like compliance, adherence, selling it as a performance enhancement tool rather than just, you know, it basically rather than just risk reduction. You know, the, the ACL risk reduction guy, when do they call me in there? Well, I can tell you in small town Illinois, the, the coach had six girls on his high school basketball team in a season rupture their ACLs. That's when they call me in. And basically we worked with them. They didn't have any ACLs over the next three years. In the third year, they won a state championship in basketball, which helps sell that, you know, because you're also going to make these athletes, what we're doing, better neuromotor control, 
ameliorating these ligament dominance, leg dominance, trunk dominance, quad dominance issues that we're talking about makes them more athletic, makes them a better athlete. So you, you're going to get that performance aspect, and I think we have to sell that more to people. Yeah, I think marketing that performance aspect is so important, but I guess also the some of the information about the downstream consequences of injuring the ACL that people yeah. don't necessarily understand, the long-term consequences, the likelihood of developing osteoarthritis at a very early age, going on to have joint replacements and other surgeries. You don't want to scare people, but you do want to educate them at, at every level that this is crucial. And again, the people that's ha- when it's happened to their kids, very often is the one that call us are coaches that have had multiple ACL injuries, which is a big problem. Because once you've had one ACL injury, your risk of having another is quite high. Yeah, and I, no, I think the common community perception is that if you have that injury and you have that reconstructed, then you're fine. What do you want to say about that, Tim? And what's, what's the recurrent risk of uh, another injury and when does that tend to occur? So what we did is we've done these large prospective cohort studies in, in entire county school systems. And basically what we started following these kids after they were reconstructed and they went back to sport again. And basically what we showed in these biomechanical epidemiologic studies is their risk of a second tear is somewhere between a quarter and a third. It's huge. And this is really problematic. And going through that one time is very difficult. Going through that twice at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in my lab at one time, we had six researchers in our group who had two ACL tears and two ACL reconstructions. Once, once it's had happened to you that second time, it not only gets your body, it gets into your head and you want to figure out how to stop that from ever happening to you again, but also to anyone else, just because it's the second time around is really devastating. And the long-term consequences are huge. Uh, we, we just had accepted into clinical journal sports medicine, a paper, uh, another umbrella analysis or, or meta of meta-analyses where we show that, well, multiple things. Number one, your, your risk of osteoarthritis is six, seven times, eight times higher than someone who hasn't had an ACL injury. It's huge. And even if you've had your ACL reconstructed, you have significantly high risk, actually slightly higher risk in the range of about 40% higher risk if you've had the ACL reconstructed. Now, again, a surgeon's going to argue with those numbers and they'll say, well, that just means you're going to be more active. And that might be so, but regardless of whether you get surgery or not, you're going to go to onto osteoarthritis. Now, this umbrella analysis that we just had accepted at CGSM shows that may not be quite as high as we once thought. So what we showed at 10 years out, the risk of osteoarthritis is about a third. Other people have quoted some higher numbers, but what we think it's about a third, but it's, it's very prevalent. So for the person who's ruptured their ACL, they've had it reconstructed, what is it that they should do about preventing re-injury and when should they return to sport? Yeah, and, and so we've got several papers in this area too. We, we wrote a current concepts a couple years ago in AJSM that, that I highly recommend uh, 
to look up and I can send that to you, David. And then, oh, Chris Nagelli and I wrote a paper. I, I had this idea for about 10 years and I held on it because I, I knew people would say it was so ridiculous. But we, we suggested if you're not doing objective testing, very highly objective, very targeted testing, that you should probably wait two years because if you look anything like proprioceptive deficits, strength deficits, especially if in the hamstrings, if you've had a hamstring graft, the, the bone scan, uh, how hot bone scans are, if you look at the biology of the healing graft, you should really wait two years if you're going to use time as an indicator. And so the earlier, if we're, you're returning these kids back at six months, they're at extremely high risk. And that risk drops off geometrically over those next six months. So I highly recommend you wait at least a year because you can't fool mother nature. Just the biology of the graft, a, a, a quadriceps or a, a patellar tendon graft is going to take at least 12 months and hamstrings grafts probably take at least 18 to 24 months to mature. So we're rushing back into, and the problem is those kids, what you have is this really high performing group that goes back really quick because they pass through all this testing. They get back at six months and then they tear really fast. Again, their risk of the second tear is about a quarter, about 25% within the first couple years. It often happens within the first year before they, they reach that year point. And then you've got the other group that fails all the testing. You can see all these ligament and leg and trunk and quadriceps dominance patterns. And if you don't get them corrected, their risk is even higher, about a third. So you've got all of these two populations and they're both at really high risk. And it's going to help the, the longer you wait but at the same time you're waiting doing targeted neuromuscular training at those deficits that are putting them at greater risk yeah so so important information because there's so many people out there who are i guess have that misperception that once they've torn it and had it repaired they can get back to normal in no time at all now not all injuries are the same and i'm just wondering if you could just briefly Talk about the differences as far as longer-term risk of osteoarthritis and return to sport for an isolated ACL injury versus a, an injury that combines an ACL with a meniscus versus that that combines it with an osteochondral injury. Yeah, exactly. So the one thing we say is those multiple injured structures. So there's your ACL, there's the terrible, the old term terrible triad, which is your ACL meniscus and your, and your medial collateral ligament. But then there's also injury to meniscus and articular cartilage. Those people, they really need to wait and give mother nature her healing time. So we weren't releasing people prior to 12 months, those that had multiple operations on multiple structures. Yes, the Obviously, the, the menisci or the shock absorbers of the knee, you, you lose that meniscus, or even if you have a meniscal repair, you have to give time, and you have to, to give time for healing, but also you have to give time for neuromuscular re-education, neuromuscular training, so that they use optimal movement patterns. So the longer they wait, the, 
there's more and more evidence. There was a couple papers recently that just came out that showed the longer the delay, the, the better the long-term prognosis. So, so much information there. And I obviously haven't managed time particularly well um, and really love, love chatting to you. And I guess what we might do is skim through a couple of additional questions, but one in particular, is there any particular resources that we haven't touched upon that you might like to emphasize that would be really helpful for people that want to dig into this a little bit more and anything that I might have forgot to ask that you want to elaborate on? Go to American Journal of Sports Medicine is, is crucial. There's lots of good papers there. Journal of Athletic Training, JOSP. There's a lot of data there. Oh, there's all of the places, uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where I worked for 20 years, the website there has a lot of great information. Ohio State University, Mayo Clinic, uh, we built websites at all those places that, that really give a lot of great information. But APTA, the National Athletic Trainers Association, those, those are all important ones. But, you know, please take a look at at my YouTube, Tim Hewitt, my, my Twitter. I, I spend a lot of time with this on Twitter, which the, the main one is Hewitt1Tim, but there's also Timothy Hewitt1. So yeah, it, a lot of it, I, I try to put out as much of that as I can to disseminate this, but those other websites are also very useful. Yeah, that's superb. And I think a lot of people will get a lot of meaning out of that. Now, I'm just going to skip through a couple of additional questions because I'm really intrigued and have loved chatting to you about this. But why do you do what you do? What motivates you? I love discovery. I love investigating something. I, I, I really love experimental design. Experimental design is like future prediction. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out what's going to go wrong in your study. And I guess besides a bulldog, I'm, I'm maybe a bit of a pessimistic bulldog. I'm good at figuring out everything that can go wrong, possibly go wrong. And that's what you design your study around, right? That's what randomized controlled trials are about. And then, oh, at that time of discovery, I, I find it so exciting because this idea that I have just this pure and absolute love of science and discovery and being able to you know, hold that unique knowledge, especially since it takes a year or two years to get it out there and get it published. It's just a perfect fit for my passions and my skill set. And, and I think it's useful to other people. I think it can make a difference. That's, that's what I love about it. That's what motivates me. Are there any messages that you might like to leave us in closing that I think would be really valuable for our listening community? I'd say if any message, especially related to those with osteoarthritis or risk for it, keep moving. And I, I tell this, I have a 92-year-old mother who's highly active, and I tell her every day, keep moving. When she started developing knee osteoarthritis, we, we bought her a trampoline. When she couldn't ride a regular bike anymore, we bought her a tri-bike. And we just, we all, I have six sisters, we all work together and we go in shifts to keep her moving. I, I think osteoarthritis tends to slow people down. You gotta keep moving, hopefully at that same level, as close to that same level as where you were before. That's wonderful, Tim. It's been such a joy having a chance to have a chat with you. Really learned a lot. I think there's a lot of valuable information that you've shared with us and I can't thank you enough. 
Thank yeah. you so much. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong, and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.